I'm Sean Drummond. I'm the outgoing Chief Executive of Metro North Hospital and Health Service. I've had a very varied and interesting career and uh, the past seven years has been as the Chief Operating Officer and the Chief Executive here. And during that time I've worked in the New South Wales, Victoria, New Zealand and Queensland health jurisdictions. And so I've uh, been able to experience the rich environment that each one of those health jurisdictions uh, has. Sean, thank you very much for finding the time to talk to the Queensland Clinical Senate. Thank you. You've worked in the health system for most of your career in operations and executive positions. What is it that attracted you to healthcare? It's an interesting question. Uh, many years ago, one Christmas, my wife, uh, Nerida or Ned, uh, said, why do you enjoy your job so much? And I said, at the end of every year, I've been able to sit down and say, I've actually made a difference for my community. You know, I've improved the quality of the services that I've been part of the leadership of, and I've been able to deliver better access to our community. And those are really important things that we actually do uh, as a system. And, you know, one of the things I talk about inside Metro North is what is our mission? Well, our mission's not to return a budget surplus to government, though obviously they like that. But, you know, our mission at the most simplest thing is uh, here, we bring 25 beautiful babies into the world every day in the hospitals that make up Metro North. We save hundreds of people's lives through our emergency departments. We see about 250,000 people a month in our ambulatory services, and we have about 25,000 inpatients. And we send those people, generally, home well to their loved ones and their families. You know, what we do, our mission has real meaning to people, uh, and that's why I've loved uh, my career in health. What attracted you to health in the first place? It's interesting. I worked in the private sector for a lot of uh, for-profits, and at the same time, I also did a lot of work inside uh, public health. And one of the things that I'm a very strong believer in government should be offering good, safe, quality uh, health services and free education. I'm very left-leaning with a, with you know great commercial schools and disciplines. They're not uh, at odds with actually having you know a strong social conscience. And so I've always believed that we've actually got to offer a great uh, public health service and I wanted to contribute to that. Was it what you thought you would do growing up as a child, working in healthcare, executive management? No, I was a complete science geek when I was actually uh, young and my subjects through school were physics, chemistry, calculus, statistics. I had did no subjects to do with business or commercial uh, skills. I got university entrance when I was actually 16. And uh, my parents lived in a rural area of New Zealand and I would have had to move away. So at that time they said, I'll do a gap year. And basically at that time I always thought I'd wind up being a mad scientist and, you know, build giant lasers or something <laughs> like that. In that gap year I worked in information technology in the 80s, it was very fledgling. And I actually wound up working as an analyst programmer and through a very circuitous route, I uh, wound up in industrial relations from there. And then from industrial relations, I was doing a lot of work in the health sector. So no, I always thought I was going to be a crazy scientist. <laughs> so back here to where we are now at Metro North, you've been CEO for almost four years. And prior to that, you were the executive director of operations for several years. You've said that this has been the most rewarding period of your career, Sean. Why is this the case? And, and what are you going to miss most about your role? 
I might start with what I'm actually going to miss uh, the most. The most rewarding thing uh, that I actually do is when we think about that mission, working with the clinical teams and the non-clinical teams that actually enable us to deliver you know, those high quality, those effective services, working with them and supporting them uh, and how we actually do that as an organisation uh, is something that I get a great deal of, uh, of joy out of and feel very privileged to be part of that. So that's the thing that I'm actually going to miss, that, that basically everyday contact with those people that actually support our services. So Metro North is the largest health service in Australia. Well, in fact, across Australia and New Zealand. And so uh, during that time, the focus that we've actually had on developing those models that actually support effective clinical decision-making, the understanding of how we actually capture resources, funding to actually support what we want to do, that has enabled us to actually push our agenda around research, uh, you know, speeding up those times around translational research. And I think we've done a lot of work as an organisation on building a great uh, research strategy. When I think about the fact that we have 25 fellowships across Metro North where somebody gets their full salary for three years and then 40% of the salary for two years after that to actually establish themselves as a clinician scientist. You know, the state runs five for all of the hospital and health services. And so what we've been able to do is to create this fantastic commercial disciplines in the not-for-profit environment that has allowed us to actually fund our strategies. You know, every year we've been able to uh, fund about $25 million of capital that we've actually raised internally to the health service to actually be able to, again, deliver on what our strategic ambitions have been as an organisation. Now, I can also say we're the only health service that has managed to build a $370 million hospital, STARS, uh, at its own cost. And that actually comes from how we've actually partnered with all of our clinical services, their understanding around, we've still got to run as a business, it's not our mission to be a business, but we've got to be able to do that. And so when I look at that trajectory that we've had through our institutes, through all the different centres of clinical excellence that we actually have inside the organisation, that has been so rewarding. Does being an effective health leader require different skills to leadership roles in other sectors? So one of one of the challenges that we actually have in the health system is just how many smart people that we actually have. And what comes with all of that great intellect is a many and wild view on direction of where we should actually go and what the opportunities are. And so the challenges between a lot of commercial entities and and public health and the public health system is actually getting people to generally tow in the same direction. Now, it's very command and control in the private sector around saying, yes, you will do this. Inside health, we can't actually operate in that totalitarian model of actually saying, well, you know, we've made a decision and it really doesn't matter what your view of the world is. And a lot of the failure in the health system occurs actually through passive-aggressive resistance, not aggressive resistance, it's people don't buy into what you're actually trying to do, and therefore they just don't act. And that actually has killed an awful lot of initiative and made things unsustainable many times across, and it doesn't matter which state you've been in, that has actually been really probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks that you haven't been able to actually articulate, tell the story 
around what we're actually doing and why and what can we actually expect and what's your part of that actual journey. I think the need to be a really, really effective leader in health requires you to be an exemplary storyteller. So is that the advice that you would have for emerging clinician leaders? Absolutely. It's about can you bring people through the story of what you're actually trying to achieve that they can actually understand their role, what is the ending uh, of the story and how you're actually going to get there. Now, one of the things, and, and I talk to uh, our uh, senior leadership team and to in forums that we're actually in, I say, you know, I articulate it like this. We're climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and that's actually what we're actually trying to do. And oh no, we come across and there's a creek in front of us. And all of a sudden we start obsessing. You know, does a creek have angry hippos in it? Has it got crocodiles? Has it got piranha? Do I have to wade through it? Am I going to have to build a boat or a raft? Or am I going to be building a bridge? And who can actually help me? And do I know how to do that? And what do I need for that? Instead of going, actually, I'm climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. There's a creek. I just need to step over it. And what we do is get too focused on the crisis of today and actually forget what the end point of the journey is and actually play out to a strategic time frame. Because what do we know? Actually in crisis, we respond so exceptionally well and if people are given the freedom to actually be agile and actually make their own decisions, um, the system will actually deal with the problem. And when we actually get too obsessed with the crisis of today, we're never going to finish climbing the mountain. I love that analogy. Sean, how important is culture in leadership? So one of the things, I'm a little bit of a heretic in this, and you know, you often hear the saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I don't believe that. You have to have a strategy for the culture that you want for your organisation, and it is absolutely essential to deliver uh, on what you need to do as an organisation to have a culture that actually supports that. You know, what do I know for uh, leaders? I, I often get people comment to me, you're always so calm. And I say, yeah, I don't stress over things. And the reason for that is oh, part of it's personal nature, but whatever the behaviour is that you're actually exhibiting is infectious and people catch that. And so if you're passionate and excited about what you're doing and the future, people catch that. And if you're calm, people catch you calm. And if you panic and you run around saying the sky is falling, people catch that. And so that's about the culture of actually being able to say, actually, don't stress. We're all really capable. We will actually tackle whatever is the challenge in front of us and we should be excited about what we're actually doing because that is invigorating and just makes it that much more achievable to to do everything. And you can do structural mechanisms that actually support the type of culture that you want as an organisation. And I use an example from when I was actually in Wellington, in Capital and Coast District Health Board, Wellington, and I was the coup and then the chief executive there. And one of the things that I did with the performance appraisal of the exec every year, at the end of the year, I'd have all their peers appraise them on how those colleagues had helped them deliver on the requirements of their job. So the annual performance appraisal wasn't around how they'd done the job that they were appointed to annual performance appraisal was around how you'd helped everybody else do their job. 
and not that was required of your role. So for example, if you're the CFO and you're actually doing, you know, business management work with, uh, you know, the head of surgery, well, that's actually required of your role. What did you actually do to help the head of surgery on something that might have been a clinical issue that you might have been able to offer a perspective or support on? And the really interesting thing was, that after every executive meeting, that team would meet afterwards and they'd have lunch or coffee together and they'd agree on what work had actually come out of that meeting, how they were actually going to support each other to actually do it. And 10 years later, they're still each other's phone a friend, even though they don't work inside the organisations. And so you can have structure and mechanism that build the culture that you want. Sean, when you announced your resignation, one of the things you said is that without partnership and empowering clinicians, you cannot succeed sustainably. What did you mean by this? So through my career, I've actually done five financial turnarounds of hospital and health services or or their equivalents. And there's this mistaken view that the executive and the accountants actually control expenditure uh, inside uh, health organisations. They don't. In fact, while they may be involved in the unit price that we might pay for a syringe or a needle or an orthopaedic screw, what we actually uh, use in the resources are actually all determined at the clinical interface. We decide how many times we're actually going to pull that person back to outpatients. Uh, What diagnostics we're actually going to use. Will we operate on that person or not? Will we admit them the day before or the day of uh, surgery? Will we put them into a community modality? All the resource decisions around how we effectively and efficiently use resources are actually made by the clinicians. And so if you can't engage them so that they actually understand uh, how the the role that that actually plays out, uh, share in the decision-making around the resources, then you will never succeed to the the point that is most effective for the organisation. Sure, you can be an absolutely harsh toe cutter and drop expenditure out, but what that does is it doesn't actually make it sustainable and nor has it actually got a commitment from the grassroots of the organisation that we're actually delivering the type of care that we should actually be delivering because we have a voracious appetite for resources and we could always do with more. Uh, And so it's about how do we actually manage what we've got effectively. And so the role of executives to provide those frameworks and the support for the clinicians to actually make the decisions that is actually the balance for what's great care for the clinician, but also the resources that we actually have available. Sean, the health of our First Nations people is an area you're passionate about. What have you done in this space? So one, so one of the things that I would would push, and I mention this all the time inside the organisation, you know, if we wanted to close the gap by 2030, which we're not going to do, very sad to say that, we committed as a country that we would close the gap by 2030, but we do not have the trajectory to actually do that. What we actually have to do is to provide better access for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders than what we actually do normally. It's not actually about equalising access because if we only equalise access, then the gap's going to remain where it is now. In fact, what we've got to do is to actually provide better access. And, you know, and one of the easiest clinical data sets that actually show us that is that the time for commencement for treatment for cancer services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is actually far shorter than what it is for a European or Caucasian uh, population. It's about two-thirds of the time to commence treatment. 
So that's fantastic. But the reason that that's actually happening is that, in fact, we're, we're screening poorly and we're detecting cancer much too late. And so what's happening is people are presenting with far more acute conditions, so we have to commence treatment much earlier. And then so we look at the outcomes for cancer and they're actually poor. So what we've actually got to do is to say, well, how do we actually screen at twice the rate or so much more frequently? Um, So we've been focusing on things like how do we actually screen more? I'm a great believer in the social determinants of health. So we have a $3.4 billion budget here inside Metro North. And uh, we're actually the third largest employer in the state. And so when you actually think about that, how can we actually contribute to those primary areas that are social determinants, which is education, housing, uh, and employment? Well, so we've um, started a Deadly Start program here. We've got more than 50 uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth that are actually in that. This is a subsidised program where we effectively give them their first foray into health so that we're actually building the health workforce of the future so that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are represented as a higher proportion uh, of the clinical workforce, but also that contribution towards the community around saying, actually, education, it leads to employment, it leads to housing, and so that the overall socioeconomic standing of the community is actually lifted. We've actually had a procurement policy before Milkgate and all of those other things that have actually happened. We actually introduced a policy that uh, in procurement, we actually put a weighting on how those organisations are contributing to the social determinants of health. Do they actually have programs that actually support uh, uh, education, employment and housing into the community for disadvantaged uh, communities? And we will actually give them uh, additional rating uh, on whether we would actually procure from that organisation on that basis. So, you know, we can play out at many levels. We've got uh, an opportunity with our academic partners to actually creating a stronger uh, education uh, leading into employment. We can, through our procurement, have a look at how do we actually, again, support industry and education that is actually uh, committed to that. And then what we've actually got to do is to actually provide far better access and timeliness of our clinical services. And we've been really focused on that. The last part of that is, you know, we've got to be a culturally responsive uh, organisation. And I think uh, I'm still shocked, even 20 years being in Australia now, and some of the things that I'm so naive about uh, having been a New Zealander and growing up and seeing how integrated uh, Māori culture is into the expectations of public service, uh, into the health. And I'm not saying New Zealand's got it all right because I've still got a lot to go on their journey as well. But, you know, some of the things uh, shocks me around, you know, we've had that report on institutional racism. And, look, it was pretty harsh on some things, and a tabletop book exercise actually doesn't tell you um, how an organisation is going. But we actually do have structural things that actually create a bias, and we need to identify those and change those things. And we're really focused on actually making sure that we identify those and change them. What is your vision for our Queensland Health, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clinicians in contributing 
towards health equity. And, you know, one of the things, uh, and I can't say it in Māori, uh, but in New Zealand that was, you know, uh, it was uh, for Māori by Māori. And mm-hmm. we actually have a very similar principle here in uh, Queensland and Australia. And that is a really important component of how do we actually make sure that our clinicians actually have uh, the opportunity to actually work with and for their people and support them through what is the very complex journey that we actually have. And so the more roles that we actually have in uh, nurse navigators for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, the uh, opportunities to actually develop uh, really strong research. And so one of the things that we've actually kicked off this year is actually a research collaborative that is actually between IUE, uh, University of Queensland and Metro North, where, in fact, we're funding a whole lot of uh, research positions into outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And so what we actually need to be doing is, is supporting uh, the clinicians around how can they actually uh, research and evaluate how we're going to be effective uh, for the system, but also how can they actually operate effectively. If you're actually going to close the gap on equity, you've actually got to create more advantage. So you actually have to have uh, more identified roles uh, inside uh, the organisation and so recruit more clinical positions that are actually specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders that we actually create a stronger network. And I was really pleased to see that we've actually created that first network for clinicians for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. I've been a, a supporter of that since that was first floated. Um, because again, this is about how can you actually offer that peer support to each other. And sometimes it's actually just a safe place to be able to say, this is what I observed, or this was actually something that's actually broken in the system. How, do, how can we actually tackle and influence that for a better outcome for our people? Sean, your new role is as a partner with Deloitte, leading their National Hospital Financial and Transformation Practice. Congratulations. Thank you. This role will enable you to influence and be involved in the national health agenda. What do you most hope to influence? Well, probably that whole philosophy around, in fact, uh, clinical services and health services actually have to be engaged and actually led by clinicians. Uh, That's not to say I'm a non-clinician. That's not to say that there isn't a role for non-clinicians inside there, but it's actually the engagement and the leadership and tapping those brilliant minds you know, we have the, one of the most educated workforces uh, of any industry. And so if we can actually marshal all the watts that comes out of that brain power into tackling our solutions and challenges, that's what I'd actually like to see, that we actually start effectively doing that as a national health system. And it's not happening only in pockets. Sean, all the very best with your new role and thank you for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you.